Well, a week and a half ago, I was in one of my favorite places, uh, and that is in Cades Cove in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. And if you've never been to Cades Cove, it is a little valley in the Smoky Mountains that was once settled by pioneers and is now part of the national park system. And what separates it from other national parks is they are not trying to keep it in its natural state. They are trying to keep it in the state that pioneers had it in. So they're upkeeping old ancient churches and these old log cabins and all this neat stuff. You get a view in pioneer life when you go there. And the main of it is this long 11-mile one-way loop road that is called, creatively, Loop Road. And you, you go on it, and there's only one way you can go. You just go in, and there's no other way except for a couple of shortcuts to get out, except for to drive the 11 miles and come back. And along the way, you see an old Methodist church and an old missionary Baptist church and an old log cabin and another larger log cabin, and then there's a place to stop and go to the bathroom and then more stuff. And a lot of times, what will happen is, is wildlife will suddenly just kind of show its face there. You might see a 12-point buck just standing there in all of its glory, 15 feet from you, and not afraid at all because you can't bring guns there and the, the deer there have figured out that they're safe around humans. So one time my dad and I were there a long time ago I was a kid, and we were standing in this field admiring that there were deer over there just 50 feet from us. It was incredible. And then I felt a, a nip on my, on my bottom, and it was, it was another deer that had walked up literally behind us and just, you know, thought that it would be fun to do that. This is how comfortable the wildlife are there around people. They know they won't be hunted. So we're driving through our whole family, and at one point, everybody except my mom, my sister, and our youngest daughter, Anna, are in, are in another car. Uh, the four of us are in our van, and I'm really excited because there might be a chance to take a picture of some wildlife. And I love photography, though I have been out of practice for a while. And so uh, about halfway through the trip, we stopped, and we got to see a mama bear and four cubs about 50 feet away in a tree, and I got to take pictures of it. was super excited. Uh, then... We're driving along, and uh, Anna really has to go to the bathroom. She's five, so some of you know what an urgent situation that is. And all of a sudden, the traffic on this one-way road is a dead stop. And that means one thing for everybody, which is they're stopping to look at something. And so when you get to the front of the jam, you're probably going to see something pretty cool if it hasn't run off already. Maybe a fox, maybe a wolf, maybe a buck, who knows. When you have a five-year-old who needs to go to the bathroom in the car, it means something else, too, that the situation has become more urgent, right? So after about 20 minutes in this traffic jam with no way to get out, my mom, wife, and, and Anna decide they're going to get out and they're going to walk all the way because it will be faster to walk a half mile to get to this bathroom that's coming up. And it's the fastest I've ever seen little Anna walk in her whole life. Man, she was going and she outpacing her mom and her grandmother. Man, she was going. So they're gone and I'm all by myself and I got the camera and the passenger seat and I'm just waiting for when I get up to the front of this thing because man who knows maybe shot of a lifetime you don't know what you're going to get to see so we get to the point where I'm the second car in line another 20 minutes or so have gone by and then I see it not a buck not a fox a large black bear and he's about eight feet from the car in front of me and he's just eating berries, having a good time like old Blue. And I'm like, okay, shot of a lifetime. Here we go. So I got the camera. I got it ready. Okay, got to remember this isn't an iPhone. I have to focus it. I got to do all the stuff. Okay, ready. Car goes. So I go right up in front of it, right out the window that has now been rolled down and click, 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 click. 
right? Like, oh, for somebody like me who takes pictures, that's huge. To get a shot of a bear like that on a wide-angle lens that takes up two-thirds of the frame, huge. So I'm so excited. I pull into the bathroom place, find, uh, find all the gals, and, oh, you won't believe it, I got to see it. And they're like, yeah, we got to see it too, but we didn't have a camera, and we're, so we're talking about it. We're so excited. We get back to my parents' house, and I pull it up on the computer to look at it, and I realize the crucial mistake that I have made. Now, a few of you will get this. People like Jen will get this. Because I had been used to taking pictures on my iPhone and was out of practice, I didn't pay attention at all to the settings. And I took that shot at 1 15th of a second, which means nothing to some of you. But some of you know what that means. The picture looks like a kid painted a bear and then smeared it with a paper towel. That's what the picture looks like. Shot of a lifetime, and I blew it because I was out of practice. And what kills me about it is that I know better. I've been taking pictures for so long, I knew better, and I blew it. I'm the kind of guy that dwells on that stuff, if you can't tell. Uh, And as I've dwelled on it, it's occurred to me that Really, a lot of the Christian life feels like that sometimes. It's one thing when we make drastic mistakes and do foolish things and fall back into sin. It's another thing when we look back at that and we're, we're dealing with the aftermath and we say to ourselves, this is even worse because I knew better, right? This is even worse because I have access to God's word and I still did that. All right, this is even worse because I have the proverb memorized that told me not to do that and I still did it. And if we're honest with each other, that can be really discouraging. Like, what, sometimes it just feels like, what are we doing here if we know all this stuff and we still keep falling into the same sins? I wonder if your heart's ever been discouraged like that, the way I was about that photo and the way I have been about many other things as well. How many times have we remembered that we need to stop worrying about stuff, right? Remember Jesus' words, do not worry about anything, Right? And yet we fall back into worry and it damages our relationships and it causes problems. Or, or we know that we need to be patient. We have access to the word of God teaching us to be patient. And yet we continue to be impatient. And oh, how discouraging it is to look back and say, I know better. I should have known better. Well, I say all that because these words are going to read in Jeremiah were written to Israel when they were in that exact state. They had God's laws written down. Only nation in the world that had their laws written by God. They knew his ways, and yet they still had fallen deep into idolatry and were paying the price for it. And what really made it sting even worse was not just the fact that they're being carted into exile now, not just the fact that their capital city is in ruins and everything is destroyed because they messed it up, but all that knowing that they knew better. What does the prophet have to say to that? What does the Lord have to say to us when we look and say, oh, I know better. Why do I keep messing it up? Well, into that, the Lord speaks some glorious words of a new day that we are now in that give great comfort to the people of God. So here is Jeremiah 31. We're going to start at verse 31, and we'll read all the way through to verse 37. Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. 
For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. The words of the Lord. So what we have in these words are promises that Jesus' death secures for us. The New Testament says that all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as we will celebrate later this morning when we take the Lord's Supper together, uh, the, night before, the night that he is betrayed, the night before he is crucified, holds up the cup with his disciples in their Passover feast, and he says, this is my blood of the new covenant. Take and drink. And he means that the wine in the cup represents his own blood that he will soon pour out when he dies. And that that death inaugurates and secures for us a new covenant for anyone who would have faith in Jesus Christ. So anybody who looks to God and says, God and I have a good relationship because Jesus died for me, because of that death that Jesus suffered. I have a good relationship with God. That's what we would call saving faith or what the Bible would call faith. Anyone who would look and say that with a clean conscience can look to this covenant that we're about to read and say that death has brought us not just into a church body that we're glad to be part of, not just into a vague, nebulous relationship with God, but into a covenant relationship defined by solemn vows that God has made to us. The text we're reading today tells us what some of those promises are. What are some of the things that Jesus' blood secures for us? So it speaks a powerful word to you if you've ever wondered, okay, I know Jesus died for me. I know that brings me some good things. Forgiveness of my sins is one of them. But what exactly does Jesus' death do for me? What did he accomplish for me when he died on the cross? This text, these new covenant promises will tell you that. He inaugurated the new covenant and brought these promises to you through his death. The Lord says in verse 31... I will make, uh, he says, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's who it's made with. And I want you to know that no matter what nation you are from, we have people here today from Nigeria and Haiti and India and England and the United States and lots of other nations, no matter what nation you are from, you are grafted into that house if your faith is in Jesus Christ. The book of Romans speaks of us in this terms. Right, speaks of the house of Israel, the descendants of Jacob, like a tree, a family tree. And those who were part of the tree but refused to receive Jesus, 
It says cut off of the tree, right? Withered, died, and cut off. But the wild shoots, that is Gentile nations like us, who place our faith in Jesus are pulled out of the ground and grafted into the tree. And so the difference between who this covenant is with and who it is not with, it is with those who have faith in Jesus Christ. If that's you, you are grafted into the house of Israel and this new covenant promise is made to you as well. Now, I want to make that distinction as carefully as I can because I'm going to say most of the time here that these promises are secured for us and secured for you. And I want you to understand that I mean you, those of you who have your faith in Jesus Christ. Those of you who do not, those of you who would say God and I are not on good terms, or you would say, yeah, God and I are fine, but it's not because Jesus died for me. It's because of some other thing. Uh, I want you to know these are promises that are available to you, but are not yours yet. And you can secure them. You can have them yourself by placing your faith in this Jesus. So the dividing, dividing line is Jesus Christ. Is his death the ground of my relationship with God or not? If so, you've been grafted into the house of Israel, and these covenant promises are for you. You could think of them, if you want to, as God's wedding vows to you. He uses some wedding terms here. And for many of you, the most powerful covenant relationship you have is the marriage that you are in or were in. In the very same way, like your relationship with your spouse, if you have one, is defined by that covenant vow and the relationship it created. Your relationship with God is defined by the terms of this covenant that he has made with you. So, said the word covenant a lot. Let's walk through what are the promises of that covenant. We've got three promises this morning and then the result. Uh, the first promise is a new heart. And we see that in verse 33. Let's look at that together. Verse 33, so that, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, and then we have it. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. This is a promise that is said a few different ways throughout the scriptures. Uh, here we have the imagery of God writing his laws and ways upon your heart. Uh, later in the book of Ezekiel, the picture is of the same thing, but a little different. God taking the hard hearts out of us and putting a soft, fleshy heart within us. Uh, even still later, Jesus will say in John 3, he'll talk about it in terms of being born again or being made new, the new birth that we are given. And then 2 Corinthians will pick up this image again of the people who are born again, of the Christians in Corinth. Paul says uh, that through our ministry, you are a letter being written by the Spirit of God. Uh, the imagery is different, but the truth is the same. Uh, for the people of God, what God does is he gives to us new hearts. Hearts that once chased after all sorts of things, believed all sorts of lies, made all sorts of terrible choices. He gives us new hearts and begins writing his ways upon them. And that is why we see the change in our lives that we do when we immediately come to Jesus and then over time as he continues to write more of it upon us. The heart is, really simply, uh, the place within you where you make your decisions, where you believe what you believe, where you feel what you feel, and where you want what you want. All your desires, all your feelings, all your beliefs, all your choices, they're all made there in the heart. And when the Lord says that he is going to give us new hearts or write his law upon our hearts, he is talking about a fundamental change in your desires, in your beliefs, in your choices, and even in your feelings as well. A heart that goes from believing lies about God to believing truths about God. 
heart that goes from railing against him to being warm and on fire for him. A heart that goes from choosing one thing to choosing another. All of this happening as he is writing his ways on our hearts. So, if you think back to some things that you really regret in life, like great sins you committed, something really foolish you did, we've all got it, right? You think back to it. If you ask yourself, why did I do that? The answer is probably some combination of I wanted to and I believed something that wasn't true, right? You wanted to and you believed a lie. That's usually at the root of all of the wrong and foolish things we do. If, uh, for instance, if what it was that, was that you stole from your boss, it was probably a combination of the fact that you wanted it and you convinced yourself that it wasn't that big a deal or you deserved it or that your boss didn't care or something like that. It's almost always some combination of believing what's not true and wanting what we are doing. And so when the Lord says, I will write my words upon their heart, I'll write my laws upon their heart, he's talking talk about just scrubbing out all that is wrong in those words on our hearts and those beliefs and those desires and just one by one replacing them with the truth. And that's why you want different things than you used to want. And that's why you believe different things than you used to believe if your faith is in Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to note that that's a feature of the new covenant, and the old covenant was not like that. And that means that a lot of the Old Testament is there to show you what it is like when a people have access to God's word, but it's not in their hearts. That's the difference often between us and them. Some of you are uh, just through with judges in our Bible reading plan, and the main question on your mind is, what? Like, what just happened, right? By the end of that book, Samson is the best hero they've got, and he is not much of a hero. There are wars breaking out between tribes. They're kidnapping wives, and eventually a concubine gets chopped up into pieces and FedExed out to the all the four corners of Israel, I think, or 12 tribes of Israel or something like that, sent out to all of Israel. Just this depraved situation. And you're left at the end of the book of Judges just going, what is going on and why is this in my Bible? Here's why it's in your Bible. It's to show you what happens over time when people have God's words here, but not here. And the only difference between Calvary Baptist Church and Israel at the end of the Judges period, it's not that we're better people than them, it's that God has put his laws here as well. That's why we're not doing some of that stuff that we read about in Judges. That's why when we do some of the stuff we read about there, we turn from it, we repent of it, and we walk in righteousness. That's the difference between having God's laws written in front of you and having God's laws written in your heart. This promise, I will put my laws within them and I will write them upon their hearts. So that's the first promise, a new heart. Uh, that is yours if you are a Christian, if your faith is in Jesus. It cannot be taken from you, and the Lord gives it to you. For the rest of your life, he will spend it just like that editor that might be editing a Word document you wrote, and it comes back to you with different stuff on it. He is editing what's on there, bringing it into alignment with the truth. Now, the verse before that gives us the result of that. If God has given you a new heart and is writing your ways upon it, well, verse 32 says that this new covenant you have with God is not like the old one that he made with our fathers, Israel, when they came out of the land of Egypt. And how is it different? He says at the end of the verse, my covenant that they broke, even though I was their husband. So this is a major difference between what they had with God and what we have with God. 
they broke what they have with God. But Christian, because you have a new heart, the day will never come when you break what you have with God. People with new hearts don't do that. And so you have assurance here. God's saying, because I've given you a new heart, this relationship I have with you is not like things used to be, not like the the faithlessness and the breaking of faith that you're reading about in Israel. That doesn't happen to his covenant people today. Why? Because he's given them new hearts that do not walk away. That may be different from something you may have been taught before. I was raised in the Methodist church where I was taught that I could lose my salvation. Um, and it didn't really scare me much because, uh, well, probably because they just didn't teach it in the scariest way. Uh, and the Methodist church is known for that. They'll teach that, but not in a really terrifying way. There are, though, other pockets of churches that will teach that you can use your salvation and then use it to scare the fire out of you, right? And then any little thing you do wrong that's different from what they say, you're just scared and you're afraid you're going to forfeit everything if you don't follow the instruction of your teachers and do everything. Some churches will exercise control over their people by threatening loss of salvation. And maybe you have experienced that, and maybe every time we talk about this, you tremble a little bit and wonder if you can forfeit all of the promises that God has given you. This is even scarier because when you think about it, if it's possible for you to receive all the promises God has given you and then mess them up and forfeit all of them, well, I've had enough things in my life that were mine to lose and I messed them up that I know how that's going to go, right? And I bet you've had enough good things in your life that are yours to lose and you messed them up that you know how that's going to go. So... Guess what I'm saying is if it's possible for me to lose my salvation, just sit tight and wait for the ride because I'm going to do it. I'm going to mess it up at some point. I bet, you could, I bet you could say the same about yourself. If it's possible to lose it, we're going to lose it. And so is there any assurance for us? Well, there is great assurance here. He says, I'll make a new covenant with you. And this one won't be like the old one that they broke. This one's new. This one's different. I'm going to write my laws on your heart so you're never going to break this covenant. So ultimately, it's not up to you, is it? It's up to the God who is writing his ways upon your heart. That God will never let you go. Never once. And so we have great assurance for any of us who have feared that we could forfeit the promises that we have trusted in. Now, that does bring up a question. Okay, what about the people we know who once professed Christ and now are gone? And I don't mean they moved to another city or left for another church. I mean, they left the faith altogether. And what about the people we know who once professed Jesus, but their life today does not show any fruit of Christian faith? What about those people? And the answer to that comes from the book of 1 John. I'll just quote it for you from chapter 2. Uh, He is talking with them about people just in that very same type, uh, people who left their church, left the faith, left the covenant, and he says they left us because they were never of us. If they had been of us, they would have stayed, but they left, so it would be evident that they were never of us. And that's the logical extension John gives to these words here. If you're part of the covenant, you're never going to break it. So if you break it and you leave, or if your life isn't reflecting a changed heart that God's laws are being written on it, that means you're not part of this. That's not what happens to people who are part of this covenant. So John can comfortably say they left us because they weren't of us. That gives a warning to anybody here who would say their faith is in Jesus, 
but whose life does not show evidence of a changed heart. If that's what's happening in your life, friend, I I want you to see that a changed heart's part of this covenant. And if you're not displaying that in a changed life with changed choices, you're not a party in this covenant. And so I am not praying that God will make you uh, growing again in your faith. I'm praying that God will give you faith and save you. That speaks a sobering word to those of us who love people in that very situation, doesn't it? I, I wonder if every single person in this room knows somebody who walked away from the faith. What does it say about them? It says we need to pray for their salvation. We need to pray that God will awaken their hearts, give them new hearts, and bring them into this covenant. So to sum that up, part of what you have here, secured for you by the blood of Jesus, is a new heart on which God is writing his ways. And the result of that is that, friend, you'll never leave this covenant he has made with you. He's made your heart new. That's the first promise, a new heart on which he's writing his ways. The second promise is later in verse 33, right after that. Right after writing it on your hearts, he says, I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. The second promise I want to put before you this morning, a personal relationship with God, open to everybody who has faith in Jesus Christ. This is another way that this covenant is very different from the old covenant. Now, the covenant that Israel had with God, you entered into it by birth. If you were born to Jewish parents, or if you were born to people who were foreigners but came into the Jewish people, you were born into that covenant. Nothing you could do or not do about it. If you were outside, you could join in. But if you're in, you're in and you get the blessings, right? You are born by first birth into that old covenant. Whether you were faithful to it or not, And that would create a situation that is kind of hard for us to imagine in this era where people in the covenant community were actually trying to evangelize each other, right? Because the covenant community had people who were faithful to the covenant and people who were faithless in the covenant. Didn't matter, you're still part of the covenant. And so they would teach each other saying, know the Lord, right? You may be part of this covenant, but you don't know God and you need to know God, calling them to come into a relationship with God, to have faith in God. This is another, you could say, upgrade in the promises God has made to us. In this covenant, you enter not by your first birth, not by the the parents you were born to, but when you're born again. You enter when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so that means that everyone who is part of this covenant has a relationship with God. All the people in the covenant know God, and all the people who don't know God are outside of the covenant. You don't enter this one by birth, but by new birth, by the receiving of the new heart, by the regeneration of your souls. And that is something that makes Christianity very different from all the other religions in the world. If you're part of it, if your faith is in Jesus, if if you can just fathom this, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around, you have a relationship with the king of the universe. Like he knows you and, and you know him. Part of me wanted to just make a whole sermon about how profound that is. 
And in a sense, it's what so many people in the States are seeking right now. Uh, Did you know that the number of registered Wiccans, that is people that would call themselves witches, uh, has multiplied either a hundredfold or a thousandfold in the last 20 years since the 90s, just exploding this religion. As so many people are curious about spells and witchcraft and how how to do all this because they sense that there's a spiritual world out there and they want to connect with it. Did you know that the use of psychedelic drugs is actually on the rise? It's not a foregone thing from the 70s. More and more people are taking psychedelic drugs so that they can have a trip, not because they want to have fun, but because they consider it a spiritual experience. And they will talk to each other about this. I've overheard some of their conversations, how excited they are that they came into contact with some other being when they were on a trip. Or one of them just exploded about how cool it was that they saw the, the grid that is the kind of the foundation of all the universe. They know that there is something out there, and sometimes they have a better sense of that than we do, and long to connect with it. But Christian, not only is there a real spiritual world out there with all sorts of creatures that are so amazing they would just blow our mind if we ever saw them. But there is one person who is king over it all. And that person wants to have a relationship with you. That's the profound promise of Christianity. You don't have to have an acid trip to see the spiritual world. No, the one who made it all reaches his hand out to you and says, I will break down the walls between us if you will trust me and I will bring you into relationship with me. You can have something better than any spell book or any other astrology thing, anything that seeks a connection with the spiritual world. You can have something so much better in Jesus Christ, a personal relationship with the one who is Lord over the whole thing. That is why Christianity is so much about these habits we talk about, reading your Bible, going to church, praying, fasting, right? Sometimes we talk about this so much that it feels like it's getting worn out, right? Why do we talk about that so much? Because Christianity is, first and foremost, a relationship, a covenant relationship with God. And it's the most important relationship you have. And so what a high priority on all of those means by which we connect with him, on, on, on prayer. That's how we connect with the God of the universe. That's why I talk about it so much. Uh, on this word that he's written for us and, and reading it and having communion with God through it. That's why we talk about it so much. On the Lord's Supper, uh, baptism, all these ways that we connect with him. Why are they so important? Because they are parts of our relationship with God and nothing is more precious to us. So there's the second promise that we have through the blood of Jesus Christ, a personal relationship with God on top of the new heart, the first one. The third promise is forgiveness for our sins. We see this later in verse 34. About two-thirds of the way through that verse, a new sentence starts, and it says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the third promise, forgiveness of our sins. To forgive someone is to cancel the debt that they owe to you. It's largely a financial term. Typically means somebody owes you money. You say, you know what? You don't owe me money anymore, even though you didn't pay me back. You cancel the debt. Sometimes you might think like this about those who sin against you and and may not even realize it. But a lot of times when you're upset because someone has offended you or hurt you, 
there is something in your heart that if they did it, it would make it right, right? In our culture, it's usually an apology, right? They owe me an apology for what they did. Or maybe, you know, it's a little more malicious than that and you really want them to suffer for what they did and after they've gone through all of that, then you're like, you know what, I can get over it now because it, it's over with, it's been taken care of. Whatever that thing is in your heart, that's, that's the debt that they owe to you. And to forgive them is to say, you know what, you don't owe me that anymore. You know what, I'll, I will treat you like I love you, I will love you, whether or not you do this thing that I want you to do. It is to cancel their debt. And this is what we have before God. Our sin against him has amounted an enormous debt. And the only way we could ever pay it is by suffering forever because we have sinned infinitely against this infinitely holy God. And what the Lord has done at the cross through his son paying for all of that sin, he looks upon us now and he says, their debt's canceled. They don't owe me anything, right? There's nothing left they have to do to be right with me. That is what he means when he says, I will forgive their sins. And he means essentially the same thing in the parallel line, I will remember their sins no more. To remember something in the Bible is to act according with it. It's not a matter of forgetfulness in the Bible. Uh, For instance, uh, in 1 Samuel 1, you'll read this soon in the Bible reading plan, uh, there's a woman named Hannah who is barren, and she's praying the Lord will give her a son and, or a child. And eventually when he does, the way it's said is, and the Lord remembered Hannah and she conceived. Now, God had not forgotten about Hannah, right? That's not how that works. No, he heard her prayers and he acted according with them and, and gave to her what she was asking. Many other times the word is used like that in the Bible. And so to remember no more our sins in that sense means he is not going to treat us in keeping with the sins that we have committed. So that means when you confess your sins to God, like we do every Sunday morning here together, Jesus is not in heaven going, huh, I forgot all about that. What are you talking about? Right? No, that, he doesn't forget things. That's not how that works. He is going to say, though, don't worry, Christian. I will not remember that against you. This is what it means that God remembers our sins no more. He has forgiven us by canceling our debt. He remembers our sins no more and that he will not remember them against us and he will not act upon them. This is just some of the amazing nature of God's promise to us. So I said earlier that the result of the new heart is that we won't break this covenant, right? And that's actually a two-way promise. Uh, We will see this now uh, from the other direction, not about us anymore, but but God also will not break this covenant uh, in the remaining verses from 35 on, and I'll just read that to you. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. He says, if this fixed order departs from me, from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, if the universe disintegrates then maybe you can worry about God forsaking you. Secondly, he says, thus says the Lord, same thing with different imagery, if the heavens above could be measured and the foundations of the earth below could be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So here, if someone takes a measuring tape 
from the star that is the farthest direction that way all the way to the star that is the farthest direction that way, then maybe you can start to worry about God forsaking you. When we put on special suits and go explore the core of the earth without melting, then maybe you can worry about God forsaking you. This is an ancient poetic equivalent of when pigs fly, basically. Like, this is never going to happen. God is never going to break his covenant with us. Now, we talked earlier about how we're not going to break it either. So, if we're not going to break it, and he's not going to break it, how's it ever going to get broken? It's not. We have here an unbreakable bond forged by the blood of Jesus Christ between you, Christian, and God, removing all fear, removing all terror, replacing it with love and awe and adoration because we have now nothing to be afraid of. So there's the nature of the covenant. Three promises, a new heart, a personal relationship with God, forgiveness for our sins. And the result is that covenant can never and will never be broken by you or by God. Let me take a moment to speak to what that means to the few of us who are sometimes tempted to make Christianity an intellectual exercise. And then we'll apply it to the two sides of the covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper as well. Uh, First, uh, there, are, there are many today, especially in our Protestant tradition, uh, who would make following Jesus largely about knowledge, right? You learn more about the Bible and you become smarter and then you know even more about the Bible and then you're able to teach about the Bible to people and it's not really all that different from the academy, right? It's just an education thing. And I want you to see in these words here that it's not just a transformation by the renewal of your mind that God is giving you. It's a transformed heart, which doesn't just think. You don't just replace old beliefs with new beliefs. No, it's more than that. You're also replacing old desires with new desires and old feelings with new feelings and old choices with new choices. And so there is somewhat of a warning here even to us for those of us that are thinking in Christianity only in terms of our mind, only in terms of what we are learning, even perhaps tempted to think I am good with God because I have learned the gospel and I believe in it up here. Friends, it's actually not enough. No, the gospel is more than, than data. No, the gospel is a trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your own sins, which is done with the whole heart. And from then on, God transforms and moves the whole heart. Typically, the telltale sign of someone who has made Christianity all about knowledge and not about actually knowing God and having a relationship with him, telltale side is usually, usually pride, intellectual pride. They know a lot and they want everybody to know that they know a lot. Now, why is that happening? Well, because the heart's not being changed and the mind is growing and the scripture says that knowledge puffs up. And I just want everyone here to know, you need to do more than know the gospel to be saved. Plenty of people know the gospel and are not saved. I believe the demons down below know the gospel and they are not saved. No, you must trust yourself to the gospel, your whole heart, mind, body, and soul, all to him. Say, I give all of myself to you. I trust you fully and completely for my life. Then watch your heart begin to change, not just in the mind, but in the heart as well. All right, let's apply this to the two signs that we have of the covenant. There are two major signs of this covenant. We'll go through them quickly, and then we'll actually participate in one of them together. The first one is baptism. 
And this passage is very important to baptism because we have brothers and sisters in Presbyterian churches, in Christian Reformed churches, and in other churches as well, who, unlike us, would not baptize their children when they come to faith in Jesus, but when they are born. And some of them do this out of tradition, but some do this because they believe the Bible teaches them, and we need to be able to interact with that. So many of these brothers and sisters would say to us, we Baptists, hey, Baptist, if the sign of the old covenant was circumcision, and it was done after eight days, and the promise in the book of Acts is believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household, right? Just like in the Old Testament. And you're the head of your household and you believe in the Lord Jesus. Why are you denying the sign of the covenant to your children? And why are you surprised if they grow up and they run astray from the faith when you denied them the sign in the first place? This isn't the promise for you and your household. This is the argument that a, that a Presbyterian or a Christian Reformed person might make to you about this. And the go-to place I want you to know is this text right here. Because this text clarifies who is in the new covenant and who is out of the new covenant. Who is in the new covenant? Those who have new hearts those who have a personal relationship with God and those who have received forgiveness of their sins. Those are the promises made by the new covenant. Someone who is born to Christian parents does not receive those promises. No, someone who has their faith in Jesus Christ receives those promises. So we wait until we see that our children have received new hearts, that God's writing his law upon, until they articulate faith in a relationship with God and forgiveness of their sins, then they are ready to receive the sign of the covenant. Then they are ready to be baptized. Then they are ready to take the supper with us. Then they're ready for church membership. That's why I have four children and three of them are baptized and one of them are not because three of them have professed faith and one of them has not. So when you get into these difficult discussions, you need to know this is what we go back to. In the new covenant, in the gospel community, everybody in the covenant is forgiven, everybody in the covenant has a relationship with God, and everybody in the covenant has been given a new heart. That's why we wait to baptize our children. That being said, we enter now into one of the most deeply significant things we do together as a church, and that is taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, I've got mine up here and the musicians have theirs. I want to ask our deacons if they would come forward and take them here. We're going to pass them out today. Uh, if you're nervous about germs, don't worry. We have, they're all individually wrapped and uh, just like they were before. Uh, but if you're still a little nervous about that, I think we have a stash in the back that's not going through any, anybody's hands and you can run back there to take it. Deacons, if you guys would come forward as you are. And I'm not down there, so um, Jim, would you mind grabbing the... Uh, the plates and passing them out to the guys. If you can say with a good conscience that your faith is in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're good with God because he died for you, that you've followed him in obedience and baptism, and that you are not aware of any sin in your life that you're not willing to repent of. You can say all three of those in a clean conscience. We would like to invite you to take this supper with us whether you're part of our church or not. We'll spend a few moments in prayer, and I want to ask you to spend that time examining yourself, wondering, is there some sin in my life I'm not aware of that I just need to confess to God that I didn't think of earlier? Preparing yourself to receive the Lord's Supper, which we'll receive together. Go ahead, guys.